Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Casey Sepp on murder, fraud, and the last trial of Harper Lee in her Bailey Gifford Prize shortlisted book, Furious Hours. Casey Sepp graduated from Harvard and studied at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker and has written for The Paris Review and The New York Times, among others. And today we're going to be talking about her debut book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Casey, welcome to Little Atoms. Right. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me, first of all, where you first came across this story. I think like a lot of people, even in the UK, I I read Harper Lee when I was quite young and I knew about Mockingbird and I had even read a biography of her life, but really read past this kind of spectacular episode in the years after To Kill a Mockingbird when she found this true crime story. And I learned about it a couple of years ago. I was doing some reporting for The New Yorker and I was supposed to be writing about Ghosts at a Watchman, the surprising second novel that was announced the year before Harper Lee died. And, you know, there were all these questions about the provenance of that manuscript and her ability to consent to its publication. And so I went down to Alabama to the town where she was born and raised and, and where she was living. And I was trying to find out as much as I could about you know her new attorney and about the folks who had sort of brought Watchmen to the world. And while I was down there, I found out about this other book Harper Lee had tried to write, this, this true crime book about a very strange series of murders in the 1970s. And the more that I learned about it, the more interesting it was. And, and the fact is, because she was interested, no one else had really written about the case. She was squatting on this great story. Everyone thought Harper Lee's version of events was going to come out any day now, so why would they bother to try and write about it? So I found out about it in in 2015 and wrote a short piece for The New Yorker right away about the Maxwell case, about these murders, um, and then just realized there was even more to say. So it grew out of some reporting just a few years ago. Harper Lee, for various reasons that we will probably go into towards the end of the of the interview, couldn't write this story, didn't get this story out. Now you have, and brilliantly I might add, but there must have been a point at the beginning where you thought, 
Hop a leak on this. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I mean, right, you talk about big shoes to fill. Um, yes, I was, of course, exceedingly aware that a very talented writer had found out about this case and spent many years trying to write a book about it. And right, the question was, you know, was there a problem with her or was there a problem with the story? And there are certainly some great stories that feel cinematic or they, they feel important, and yet they're very resistant to narrative. And the truth of the matter is this crime story is quite complicated and um, a lot of the facts remain elusive and some of the early investigations which were quite thorough were still indeterminate and there's a lot of arcana involved you know the the motive was life insurance and so you end up having to learn a lot about the history of life insurance and there are all these things about it that make it seem like maybe it wouldn't be a great book. And so, yes, early on, I thought, well, gosh, maybe she didn't finish it for a reason. <laughs> um, or it's just so difficult and I won't be able to either. And, you know, yes, if, if the thought hadn't occurred to me over and over again, I'd be interviewing, you know, octogenarians in Alabama who'd be like, really, I've never heard of you. You're going to write the book Harper Lee couldn't. <laughs> so, yeah, they were they were pretty quick to, to caution me about it. And um, I did certainly worry, especially towards the end when I was trying to sort out the ending and some things like that, you know, would, would it work out? And so the way you have done it is the book is structured. There's a section to begin with that talks about the Reverend Willie Maxwell, the supposed serial killer and also murder victim, eventually. Um, then a section about his lawyer, which we'll come to later on, and then at the end of the story of Harper Lee and her writing writing the book. And so first of all, let's talk about, well, I guess Willie Maxwell, up to the point when he becomes, he starts calling himself Reverend. What was his background? Yeah, it's he's a he's a very strange character and it's it's quite obvious why Harper Lee would have been drawn to him and for much of his life he was just a very respected and renowned clergyman and he had a very thorough knowledge of scripture and a very charismatic style of preaching and an utterly distinctive way of dressing for this part of the world. You know, he had these ornate three-piece suits, bespoke suits at a at, at a time and in a place where most African American men wore inconspicuous clothing and here he was in his suits, whether or not he was preaching, he wore them even when he worked in the timber industry and when he worked at a rock quarry. He was always sort of turning up places, looking like the reverend, even when he wasn't preaching. And so for many years, he was just renowned as as a pastor. And what happened was um, in 1970, his first wife was found murdered. And he was the prime suspect in her murder. And right away, people started to change the kinds of stories they told about him. And, and all of that respectability just evaporated. And, you know, the police, in addition to being the prime suspect, they were quite sure they were going to get a conviction. And it was only because the state's star witness changed her testimony that, that he was acquitted in that first murder, which is a very brutal murder. And there were no other suspects. And he didn't have an alibi. And right away, the police realized that he had benefited quite extensively from these life insurance policies, some of which he had only recently taken out um, on his wife's life. And so this this was all confusing to the police because they thought they had such a great case. But of course, it turns out, you know, the, the state star witness who they, they couldn't figure out why she changed her testimony. A few months later, she became the second Mrs. Maxwell. And it was immediately clear to them why. And um, when she turned up dead, you know, at that point, it was just pure rumor mill. Um, and nobody, you know, he's still called Reverend, you know, Reverend Maxwell or the preacher Maxwell. But certainly that was, you know, out of a sense of irony, not no longer out of respect. Let's talk about before we, we carry on with, I want to talk about the other people that he murdered. But what was Alabama like at this time for your typical African-American family? 
Yeah, that's a great question. The truth is, you know, even before he settled into those careers, the Reverend was drafted into World War II, and he was drafted into a completely segregated army. And, you know, we're going to get around to his lawyer, but what happened to a lot of Caucasian men when they were drafted, you know, they became officers, they got legal careers, they got skilled engineering jobs. But, you know, the Reverend was just commissioned, and and he had a very minor role in the service. And when he came back, Alabama was still just as segregated as the army had been. And so there were sharecropping jobs and there were menial jobs and there were hard labor jobs with little pay. And life, I think the way we would talk about it now is life under Jim Crow was was not much different from life, you know, pre-Civil War. You know, you were technically free, but you were you were still caught up in an incredibly predatory system of employment. And in, in particular, in this part of Alabama, it's one of the most rural counties. There's just a lot of poverty. Um, and a lot of poverty, even even in working class white families, too, because the displacement from the sharecropping system was slow and gradual. And so even if you worked very hard and worked very hard at many jobs, um, you were still basically marginal. Let's talk about, let's say something about the other people he allegedly murdered, because, you know, we've, we've been talking about the reverend himself, but it's always nice to remember the actual people who they were, who he who he killed. So first of all, there was, was it his second wife's husband? Yeah. So um, what we didn't say when we were talking about the second Mrs. Maxwell is, you know, the reverend could take a new wife because his first wife had been found murdered. And the woman he ended up marrying was only available for marriage because her husband had also died under suspicious circumstances. And that's an example of, you know, there's so much lore and rumor about this case. And over and over again, people would tell me that the reverend Maxwell murdered his neighbor, Mr. Anderson. Um, his, His wife's name was Dorcas Anderson, and she had been married to a man named Abram Anderson. And Abram Anderson was also a World War II veteran, but he had developed ALS. And, you know, I would say to people, well, he had ALS and he died in the veterans hospital at Tuskegee. It doesn't seem like the reverend was involved. And they would insist that he was. And they would say, well, no, no, he poisoned him. And it was a slow poisoning and it took a long time, but he was doing very well and he was fine. And and then he just died suddenly. And, you know, you cannot convince them there was an autopsy. The, The autopsy found he died of pneumonia. And again, He was in the hospital for 90 days, so it's not as if he was particularly vulnerable to the predation of the reverend, but um, there is just the sense that somehow the reverend was involved because it was too good to be true. Mm -hmm. You know, at the very moment he needed this man to die, he went and died. And, you know, aside from the kind of coincidence of that, we're, I'm sure, going to get into this, but there began to be these rumors that the reverend, even though he was ordained in the Baptist church, even though he was a Christian minister, that he was a practitioner of voodoo. And so that's really where the rumor mill caught attraction. And so when you talk about someone like Abram Anderson, who was, you know, a relatively healthy man, although dying slowly of a degenerative disease, the fact that he died suddenly and conveniently is why people said, well, it must have been, you know, a potion or a charm or the reverend poisoned him. And, you know, if he didn't do it with voodoo, he did it with antifreeze. And people just have this real certainty. Um, And same thing, you know, so the reverend was accused of killing his first wife and then his second wife died too. And people knew that had been done with voodoo. And then a brother of his died and a nephew of his died and a stepdaughter of his died. And in every one of those cases, the community was convinced that that he had been able to commit the crimes because of voodoo and the police hadn't been able to convict him because of voodoo. And that might have just seemed truly like unfair innuendo or the kind of unfounded conclusions of a fearful community. But of of course, the police were just as upset with the reverend and the police had just as much certainty, not that it was voodoo, but that it was murder, because in all of those incidences, the reverend had life insurance on these individuals. 
So these truly appeared to the police as patterned crimes. Um, and, the, and the methods were similar, and the motive was evidenced in everyone, and they refused to believe no, that it no was location. a coincidence. Yeah, so crime. right. So we haven't, right. I mean, again, you really feel for the law enforcement officers or the criminologists who work these cases because, right, he didn't even, he didn't even bother to kind of change the circumstances. So, right, they were all found on the, on the side of these kind of abandoned highways in this very rural part of the state, and um, all but one of them were found in a car. It was his brother who was found just abandoned on the side of the road. And some people told me they thought the car had been stolen. It had been positioned in place there, but it had been stolen before the police arrived. But yes, I mean, all within a few miles of each other, all with in the first murder, there was visible bruising and it was quite a brutal scene. But the others were basically bloodless and none of them looked like car accidents. So the cars were really staged. There was minimal damage. And, you know, to the police who arrived at these scenes, it was just over and over again, quite clear that the stage accident could never have caused death. So that was why, right, you know, again, they just were so certain and they they went about their investigations, but they they couldn't prove in some instances that it was murder. And even in the cases that were declared homicides, he was never convicted. So that's where that language, you and I have been quite careful with Mm -hmm. these allegedly's and things. And, um, you know, he obviously did yeah, I mean, that's sure. I just don't think, you know, you would not find an Alabama Bureau of Investigation agent or a sheriff or, you know, a, a police officer in this part of the state who is not absolutely certain that he did it. And, you know, outside of the reverend's family, um, even though these were these were all murders of family members, um, outside of his family, you won't find someone who, who doesn't think he committed all of these crimes. And yeah, you know, he not, I guess, you know, it's this very straightforward thing. You know, it's it's important for the American criminal justice system to distinguish between those who are found guilty and just supposed to be guilty. But, you know, that doesn't mean someone didn't commit a crime just because they were acquitted. And I'm sure we're going to get into his lawyer. But, you know, the other thing people in this part of Alabama will tell you is that the reverend had a very, very, very good lawyer. (laughs) Um, And part of what he did with his life insurance money was, um, you know, pay for a very robust and zealous defense. Let's talk about the the voodoo for a moment, because these rumors of voodoo were able to at that time to to spread because, you know, amongst a... I mean, I guess among the African-American community, they'd be much more familiar with it. But, they, you know, among the, the white community, this was like, a you know, a sort of terrifying rumour. And it's sort of easy to look back from now and think that these people were credulous about it. But actually, my idea of voodoo is entirely from popular culture, where it's about putting curses onto people or live and let die or something or, you know. And in no way, I mean, it's, you have to go some way to find discussion of voodoo that's actually about this is a a religious practice that was yeah, by totally. slaves from Africa mixed with other local religions and Right. So right off, I mean, right, I I came to this story with little knowledge of voodoo. And you're right, it was hard to find kind of legitimate scholarship. And and there are are very straightforward reasons for that, which is for quite a long time, anthropologists were indifferent to black spirituality and black religion. And, you know, even more than that, there was real antagonism from the police and the authorities, both religious and secular, in in policing the behavior of African-Americans. And that included distinctive religious practices. So voodoo is one of these things that, right, most of us only know through the 
these pejorative presentations in cinema. You know, it's voodoo dolls and orgies and zombies, and that's all there is. And of course, what there actually is, for the most part, for a lot of rural practitioners, is a kind of alternative system of medicine. Um, so if you think of it this way, you know, it's kind of homeopathic remedies. You have a toothache and you go and get a certain kind of root, or you have a backache and you go and get a certain kind of salve, or you're someone who um, couldn't afford medical care or lived in too remote a region to get to a hospital. And so there were rural healers. And, you know, that system of alternative medical practice, which is variously known, these are kind of distinct, but um, in some communities overlapping terms of hoodoo or voodoo or root working. Um, And a lot of them are really just homeopathic medicine. And then there are things like, you know, intentions and charms. And, And I think that was one of the things that was so humbling for me is to realize I came in thinking I didn't believe at all in voodoo and then realizing any number of superstitions that I had been told about as a child or sort of, you know, it's not just skipping over a crack or, you know, believing that you need to cross your fingers if you want something to happen or, you know, blink twice if you want to catch someone's eye. There are just these sort of charms and enchantments for the world. Um, and I think for folks who read, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, you you sort of realize, right, even white folks in the South and in various parts of the world, you know, I'm mindful of the fairy glens in, in parts of the UK, right? And, you know, none of us believe in fairy glens, and yet actually quite a lot of us do. Or we have a kind of eerie sense of presence or spirituality in those places. And so I think voodoo has the great misfortune to have just been so maligned in the culture that we we forget all the, the ways that it was legitimately practiced, or to your point, that it was syncretic with other kind of, quote, legitimate religions. And in particular, that's, you know, Creole Catholicism and, you know, the way you use prayer and candles and things like that, or the way that you ritualize, you know, touch healings and things like that. So it was quite a lot of fun to learn about it and to read about it. And I was so surprised surprised to learn that one of the earliest and um, kind of most serious scholars of, of voodoo was Zora Neale Hurston, this African-American novelist. And probably folks know Jonah's Gourd or they've read Their Eyes Were Watching God. She's an incredible um, kind of romantic 20th century novelist. But she also, she was a graduate student at Barnard and she studied with Franz Boas, this like very renowned anthropologist who was interested in field work and pioneered these kind of, you know, he would send his students out into the field to collect folklore and stories and songs and things. And so Zora Neale Hurston went around the American South and went around Haiti collecting stories and charms and potions and spells from voodoo practitioners and sitting in on their worship and their practices. And so um, actually, it was quite fun to read her beautiful account of voodoo and hoodoo in various parts of the world. So I tried to bring that into the book because, right, it felt important for me to the, for, for this to feel serious. And I don't think, you know, it doesn't matter to some extent whether I believe in voodoo or you do. The point is people there believed in voodoo. And it was right. It was a very legitimate way of um, kind of processing this fear. And, you know, I I think it's hopefully the book brings to life some of that openness we all have. You know, obviously, if you don't if you don't believe in you know, spells, you might believe in ghosts or you believe in that sort of thing. And there's something that at some point in your life has kind of given you goose pimples and made you wonder if there's more than what you know. And um, that's where I think the lived experience of folks with the Maxwell case is relevant. Because you might dis- you know, you might never believe that someone could be a voodoo priest and, you know, kill his neighbor just by looking at him. <laughs> or, you know, my favorite thing that people said about the Reverend Maxwell was that he could turn into a black cat. And, um, you know, that's partly because a lot of the hoodoo ingredients include black cat bones. So black cats were just especially associated with the religion, which makes sense if you think about witchcraft and the role that black cats have just played in any number of kind of incantatory beliefs over over the centuries. But um, Harper Lee, when she was looking into this case, adopted a stray cat 
um, and she called it Reverend Maxwell because these were just always part of the stories people told about him. Um, so I was I was glad to be able to look at it more seriously and more thoughtfully and, and to really just consider, you know, not to pass judgment on the beliefs people had or the stories they told, but to sort of animate them in a way that made sense. Because, of course, if you if you don't think about the lived experience of this time, so it was from 1970 to 1977 and just one after another, you know, at a time when many African-American men were convicted on less evidence for more serious crimes, you, you just couldn't believe why the reverend could get away with this. And so it was important because, of course, it's only then that you understand what happened to the reverend, that actually this hysteria and this fear just grows and grows and grows until finally a vigilante feels motivated to act. And that's part of why I just felt like, you know, I can't ignore the voodoo rumors, even though there's no, I found no evidence that the reverend actually was a practitioner or that, you know, anything like this had happened. It's just over and over again, people said these things about him and they thought they were true. And indeed, the the man who murdered the reverend is alive and well. And I interviewed him for the book and over and over again, he would tell you, you know, he shot the reverend three times in the head and he would do it again because he was a menace and a danger to the community and the police were doing nothing about it. And that includes, you know, he could make people sick. He could, you know, cause them to die just by looking at them. You know, oh, he was poisoning people. He wore clothespins on his ears. And the voodoo is very much embedded in the kind of justification narrative that the vigilante has about this case. This is... Robert Burns, the man that, that shot the Reverend in front of 300 witnesses. And we'll, we'll, we'll perhaps touch on him a bit more when we, in the second half when we talk about Tom Radney. But just to finish off on the Reverend, first of all, we have to talk about the insurance because mm. the book also you know, covers the, the sort of cowboy early years of the insurance industry. Now, I mean, I'm sure things are a lot different in the U.S. now, but they are very different here. You absolutely cannot. Yeah, yeah, you can't in the U.S. I sometimes feel the need to say the book is not a how-to for voodoo or life insurance fraud. Yeah, so it's right. It's another example of why history and context are so important to this story, because I just think people today read about this life insurance fraud and they think, how could he get away with it? And the truth is anyone could have at the time. Um, So all you needed was a correspondence address the date of birth and a social security number for someone you wanted to insure. And many insurance companies would issue a policy without ever making sure that person had given their authorization, without ever undertaking a medical examination at the start. And so, you know, when the reverend realized this, he just started taking policies out on all of his relatives mother, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, anyone he could get a social security number for, he would take out a policy. And, you know, someone who I interviewed for the book said, you know, this was a hit list, you know, because he had taken out these policies and sometimes he wouldn't renew them. So the other thing that was true of these policies at the time, nowadays, if you go and you're trying to take out a policy on your partner or your spouse, you know, first of all, that person has to consent and they are contacted by the company and they are subject to a rigorous medical exam. But at that time for the reverend, none of that was required and he could just you know, write a policy out at his address, send in the form, pay 10 cents, 25 cents. There were these completely nominal fees. And it was only on the renewal anniversary, so a year into it, that you might owe $10 or $15 or the normal fee. Well, that's bad news if you plan to let that person live more than a year, but not if you don't. <laughs> so in the reverend's case for 10 cents, you know, he knew he could get $1,000 off this policy, $3,000 off another. And in all likelihood, there would not be an autopsy even after the death. And and he got away with it for quite a while before the insurance companies clocked on. And he was very sophisticated in that he used so many different companies, 
even the ones who caught on didn't realize how much independent insurance he had on the same individuals from other companies. So, you know, in the case of one of the Ys, it's 17 different policies with 12 different companies. And there was just no kind of central database of insurance, either based on the insured or the beneficiary. But over and over again, the reverend was able to execute these policies. And it it adds up to about a half a million dollars in insurance. It's a tremendous amount of money. Um, and it took a very long time for the companies to catch on. And then, you know, then it turned into a different kind of legal fight. He wasn't just being investigated by the police. He was having to sue the insurance companies to get them to pay and having to argue his case before various juries. But over and over again, he prevailed. And, you know, over and over again, these insurance companies were, were forced to pay out on just, you know, an incredible amount of life insurance. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Casey Sepp. We're talking about her book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. And Casey... All through the first part of the book, when we're talking about the Reverend and his crimes, there is also mention every now and then of this shadowy lawyer who not only defends him for all of these murders, which it seems to everybody he has obviously done, but also represents him in all of these insurance cases that that result from these murders. And while reading this section, I'm imagining this sort of like, you know corrupt, Lionel Hutz-type country lawyer guy. (laughs) And then we meet Tom Radney, and boy, that's not the case at all, is it? 
Yeah. I mean, just as the Reverend is an incredibly interesting villain, Tom Radney is an incredibly complicated would-be hero. Um, and I know we're going to get to Harper Lee, but I just sometimes think she really found the the perfect story with the perfect collection mm. of characters. Because Tom Radney is, as much as any one person can be, complicated. And so, right. So I sort of, I mean, that's the point, right? The book is set up to make you think you know something about this mm. lawyer. And then your actual first introduction to him is when he's running for lieutenant governor in 1970. Um, it's, it's just right around the time he's going to meet the reverend. Um, he is running as a liberal Democrat who's pro-integration during the George Wallace years of Alabama. So right away you think, huh, This is interesting. And indeed, Tom Radney was this progressive politician who, once the courts ordered integration, was pro-integration and argued for equality and really kept trying to keep the Democratic Party where it was instead of letting it or or rather tried to drag it further to the left rather than letting it sit where it was. And it's kind of a curious period because I think for a lot of observers, you you hear Republican and Democrat and you think the parties have always sort of mapped onto these liberal and conservative positions, especially the Southern Democrats. Right. But um, actually what was happening at this time is, you know, the Republican Party was becoming more conservative on race and the kind of tectonic plates of the parties were shifting and no one was more responsible for that than George Wallace, who had basically had the segregationist platform when he was governor of Alabama, and he had been running for president over and over again. And Tom Radney was, you know, not a Wallace man. And in fact, when when George Wallace ran for president in 1968, when kind of everybody else in Alabama was supporting him, Tom Radney was trying to get Teddy Kennedy to run because he was a big Kennedy fan. And Bobby Kennedy had just been assassinated. MLK had been assassinated. And um, he was trying to convince Teddy Kennedy to step up and run. And so that was Tom's kind of political persuasion and he lived long enough, you know, he voted for Obama and actually some of his family is still very liberal and um, one of his granddaughters worked on the Doug Jones campaign, so the last Democrat to be elected in Alabama. And so he's just this very liberal guy and very outspoken and, you know, until his, when his political career ended, then he kind of settled into small town lawyering and it's basically why he was the reverend's lawyer. So at a time when white attorneys, many of them wouldn't even take black clients, Tom was happy to and he felt like some some of the work he could that he wanted to do as a politician, he was able to do as a lawyer. And so, you know, if you were a black family, here's an example of a case. If you were a black family where you had paid out your life insurance forever and the company then tried to deny you the benefit when the insured actually died, you know, Tom would take your case and sue on your behalf to get the money. Or, you know, you were in a car accident and, you know, someone's trying to deprive you of your medical fees and Tom would, you know, sue on your behalf. Or, you know, he'd help black folks with their wills and things like that. And so, right, he's this interesting guy. He thinks of himself as an Atticus Finch. And it makes it makes reasonable sense why he took the reverend's case. And I don't think anyone begrudged him taking the reverend's first case, you know, defending him in the first murder trial. But yeah, things, the, the opinion of folks around town, just as it changed about the reverend, changed about Tom Radney. And suddenly he was complicit. And people thought, you know, it was over and over again. Here was Tom Radney getting the reverend off. And then when it came to the life insurance stuff, he was taking 40% of the proceeds. And at one point, Tom built a new law office um, right downtown and this new brick office. And people started to call it the Maxwell House because it was the house that the reverend had built with all of these insurance proceeds. And so Tom's reputation was was to some extent compromised by representing the reverend. Now, if you asked him why he did it, he would say everyone deserves a lawyer. And, you know, these these are just rumors about, you know, an innocent black man. And, you know, I, I just think it's not fair. And he's worked very hard and he's a widow and he's trying to raise a family. And 
you know, it's no one's fault that he's responsible for taking out this, these insurance policies. And so, yeah, Tom was in a bit of a bind. Um, and so when the reverend was murdered, part of the reason Tom, I mean, I think Tom's politics are interesting. And, and I think anyone who has such a frictive relationship to their time and place, as Tom did, you know, Tom lived at a time where if he'd just moved north of the Mason-Dixon line, he would have been a very successful politician. Mm-hmm. The rest of America was changing, um, but he would never leave Alabama. He was sixth-generation Alabamian, and he wouldn't leave. Um, so there he was trying to figure out how to live his politics, and, and then he was, you know, mixed up with the reverend. And when the reverend was murdered, Tom did something that was absolutely shocking to the attorneys in town who didn't even know if he was allowed to, but something that was kind of restorative for his own standing, which is he agreed to defend the vigilante. Um, and so he becomes this kind of hinge figure in the book because after having been the Reverend Maxwell's lawyer for 10 years, he then agrees to defend the man who murdered his former client. Um, and the one point of, you know, commonality for Tom is just the way, you know, he was fighting for liberal politics. He liked a tough case and he liked a long shot. And to some extent, he just really liked, you know, the publicity, whether it was being a politician or being a lawyer. And so, of course, you know, he loved the idea, this vigilante who's murdered the reverend in front of 300 people. He's confessed to the police not once but twice. You know, of course, Tom is salivating for this case because it's the case of a lifetime. You know, people are going to obsessively follow the trial. No one thinks a defense attorney can win. And that is exactly the kind of case that Tom Randy lives for. Going back to when he was when he was defending the Reverend over and over again, and yeah, I'm reading the book and thinking, okay, well clearly now we know this guy. We know that he clearly thinks here that he's, you know, doing something progressive in in defending this, mm. you know, this black man that's accused of these crimes. But of course all of the Reverend's victims were also Marginal, black. black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right. So it's black on black crime and it's within the same family. And I know it's funny. There's a very kind of schizophrenic reaction to Tom Radney. And I'll tell you, the lawyers who read the book know exactly why he provided this defense. Because, look, you know, you can be a mob lawyer. You can be a lawyer who, you know, represents terrorists. And there are a lot of lawyers who do really live and die by the sense that it is about the integrity of your case, not, you know, the innocence of your client. And if lawyers refused to defend people who had done bad things, the legal system would fall apart. Um, And so lawyers really get him. But, yeah, the rest of us sort of scratch our heads like, why did he keep doing this over and over and over again? And if you were giving your client the benefit of the doubt in the case of the first wife, honestly, when the second wife died under identical circumstances, how could you keep doing this? Or I think the real final straw for a lot of people around this part of Alabama was the last victim was a 16-year-old girl. And that was too much. You know, this was a teenager. It was a stepdaughter of the reverends. Once again, you know, he was the prime suspect. There was no other reason. No one no one had any reason to murder her. She was in one of the reverend's vehicles. Um, he did not have an alibi for the period of time when, when she was placed under the vehicle. And, you know, I just think the, that the circumstances of that last, last death are really were the final straw. And indeed it was. You know, someone decided if the police weren't going to be able to convict the reverend, then he was going to murder him and, and do what needed to be done. Now, the police did. I mean, these were very rigorously pursued cases. It's not like these victims were neglected. You know, the police thought they had a case against the Reverend for most of the cases. Nonetheless, there is still always this nagging feeling, which obviously we can never know because this is this is history. But 
there's this nagging feeling that if one of these victims had been white, he'd yeah, probably have been sure. convicted. Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable thing. And I, I a couple of times presented that to some of the... Um, so, so these crimes were investigated by local law enforcement. So in some instances, yeah. town police, and in some instances, county sheriffs. That's how the um, kind of law enforcement distribution works in Alabama. But after the second death, they were all kicked up to the Alabama Bureau of Investigation. So there's a statewide investigative body. And that state agency oversees more sophisticated autopsies than the kind of, you know, these local coroners, the one who worked some of these cases was an electrician. And so, you know, he was not trained as a medical examiner. But these cases all got kicked up to the state and the bodies, you know, were subject to statewide autopsies and extensive analysis was done on looking for poisons and toxins and that sort of thing. And you're right to point out, right, it's it's paradoxically both thorough and not thorough enough. And, and so I did ask a few of the folks who work these cases, you know, what do you think would have been done if these were white victims? You know, if he, if he had killed outside of his of his racial group or, you know, he had ended up committing a crime that, that more directly affected the white community. And they were pretty resistant to that. Um, but I think obviously then the jury dynamic would have been different. So the reverend only ever faced blacks were eligible for jury service at the time, but he only ever faced white juries. Um, and I think there might have been the, those juries would have been less malleable to the defense's arguments, I think, um, because, again, you look around the state and well into the 80s and 90s, there were um, and, and there continue today to be real cases of racial prejudice when it comes to jury selection and jury bias and the kind of discrepancies in the in the sentences they issue. Um, so I, I do think, you know, things might have gone differently if there had been even one white victim. I'm conscious that we've not really talked about Harper Lee too much yet, and we are sort of running out of time. But so Harper Lee, she's you know she's written To Kill a Mockingbird, it's a massive success. She hasn't written anything for a while, which for reasons which again we'll, we'll probably talk about in a bit. One of one of the things I was fascinated to learn was, and again this is I mean way post the New Deal, but we you know we're talking about a America that's you know embedded in the Cold War and finding communists under every bed and yet if you were an author and you you happened to luckily have written a massive bestseller <laughs> the tax you was going to pay was incredible yeah there's a there's a funny through line in the book and right it has to do with um the polite word for it is frugality but the you know the actual word for it is just cheap um, Harper Lee was incredibly cheap and, you know, she'd been born into the Great Depression. And so understandably, she did not have an ostentatious lifestyle. Her family was actually pretty well off as as far as small towns in Alabama went. But right, even when she made millions of dollars, she'd lived this kind of inconspicuous life. She's actually it's appalling. She lived in a rent controlled apartment in New York for most of her adult life. And, you know, she dressed modestly. She didn't travel as much as she could have. But yes, she nursed this ongoing antipathy to the, the federal government because she resented her taxes. And she was so rich that at the time there were the, the marginal tax rates were just much higher then. And so she was wealthy enough that she was paying a 70% tax. But um, I don't think she understood marginal tax rates. I think she thought she was paying 70% on everything she made, which of course she was only paying it on you know, the amount that exceeded that bracket. But yes, over and over again, Harper Lee would complain about her taxes and in fact started to say she didn't want to write anymore because the government was just going to get all the money anyway. <laughs> and 
And then, you know, after a certain amount of time passed, a lot of her friends thought that there was no way she could have been living off the royalties of that one book. They just found it impossible to believe. You know, the book had come out in 1960. She lived until 2016. So I had a couple of funny moments where friends of hers in New York would say, well, we always picked up the check because we worried about Nell. She went by, her, her name was Nell Harper Lee. And they'd say, we worried about Nell. So we'd pick up the check and I'd have to look at them and say, you know, that book sold a million copies a year. And, you know, in addition to that, she had this sweetheart deal for the for the film adaptation. So she made money off of that, too. And so she was tremendously wealthy. Um, and I think actually it's probably one of the things that most writers have to write book two because they can't live off the royalties from book one. And they write book three because they can't live off the royalties from the first two. But Harper Lee was actually able to live very comfortably just from the one book. And so whatever duress might have forced her to be more productive or less precious about her work or, you know, she struggled with with a lot of things that contributed to her writer's block. She had suffered from depression and had a drinking problem and really went back and forth about, you know, the, the way to structure a book. And she was a perfectionist about the actual kind of nitty gritty writing she did. But, you know, I think on top of all of that, there was just structurally she didn't have to publish again. She was she was so well off. She she did not she did not have to write for a living. You talk in the book about her pretty much lifelong friendship with Truman Capote and she assists him greatly in the writing of In Cold Blood and this is sort of the beginnings of both true crime as we would know it now but also the sort of new journalism, the narrative non-fiction idea which she's a little snobby about perhaps. Um, But when does she... When does she become interested in this story? Yeah, so she clocks on to the Maxwell case in 1977. So the Reverend was gunned down in the summer of 1977, and his vigilante was arrested right away and then arraigned eventually, but the trial didn't start until September of 1977, and Harper Lee found out about it that summer and came down, and she actually, just the way that she and Capote sat through the trials of Hickok and Smith, the the two murderers out in Kansas, she came down to Alabama and she sat through Robert Burns, the vigilante, Auntie's trial. And that's when she started her reporting and her research. And sometimes people ask me, you know, why this case? It's very interesting, but obviously, unfortunately, there are interesting murders all too often. And one of the things that she had going for when it came to the Reverend Maxwell is she had three nephews and a niece. And the niece had married this guy whose family owned a motel where this all happened. And so, you know, I was telling you how cheap and frugal Harper Lee is. I think one of the underestimated reasons for her interest is that she moved into that motel and she didn't have to pay for the room. Um, And that niece helped her, you know, get to know people and help set up interviews. And so she spent about nine months there. Um, not only attending the trial, but interviewing the lawyers and the police officers and people who had worked with the reverend and um, family members of the victim. So the same kind of reporting that she had helped Capote with in Kansas and, and was building the same body of material to write a nonfiction book. And you alluded to her disapproval of the new journalists. And, and I think ultimately, kind of shockingly, her disapproval for her friend Capote. You know, she had been there for all of the reporting within Cold Blood. And so she probably more than anyone to read the book could see the ways that he stretched the truth or fabricated what you may never know or um, just embellished something someone had said or, you know, took a tiny bit of information to make it into an entire scene. And she disapproved. She really, you know, when Capote went around saying he had written a nonfiction novel, which I think, you know, I, I can make my piece with narrative nonfiction, okay, as a sign of the kind of aesthetic choices someone's making or the aspirations they have for their prose. I kind of agree with Harper Lee that nonfiction novel feels like a contradiction 
fiction in terms, right? right? Like it is either nonfiction or it is a novel. Um, and I understand the impulse to try and make the story better or to fill in the gaps you don't have. I mean, look, we were talking about the Reverend. There are many things I wish I could have just guessed at and you know asserted as fact that we're not. But I think Harper Lee is right. And you have to be candid with your readers about the things you know and the things you don't. Um, and if you don't want to be, if you want to invent and fabricate and exaggerate, then you write a novel and you call it fiction. Um, and there's all sorts of historical fiction that's based on a true story, um, but no one's drawing any conclusions and no one expects fidelity from a historical novel. And I think that's what that's what Harper Lee was was so disapproving of within Cold Blood, that Capote went around telling the world it was all fact and that everything in it was you know verified and true to the highest standards, and she knew it wasn't. There's various different estimates as to to what extent she wrote this book finished this book one more thing to finish us off and i want to talk about you know the obvious question of why she didn't write this book but at the same time also how to phrase this to what extent was her not writing this book also connected to the fact that she wasn't writing yeah, that's a great question. And and it's a really textured one, because, right, the question is, is this the same kind of not writing she was always doing? <laughs> you know, and we all have some friend who's, you know, working on their novel, and they have been for 10 years. And when you really get down to it, it just means, you know, they have a computer document that they call novel that occasionally they look at, but they're not actually typing into it, and there's no drafting. And so she, To Kill a Mockingbird came out in 1960. And for much of the 60s, she was at work on novels that she variously abandoned. Um, and according to letters and according to what she told her agents, you know, she would write, you know, a few hundred pages at most and then either destroy it entirely or reject it or keep some part of it and try and tinker with it. And so when it came to the Maxwell case, she very much did the reporting and the research. She spent nine months in this town doing it and followed up over the years with other sources. But there is this real question of how productive was she? And that's one where, right, a lot of what I can tell you in the book is based on interviews with people who knew her at the time or who were watching her work. At one point, God bless her, her sister, Harper Lee had two sisters, one of whom was kind of her business manager who handled all of her contracts and things. And the other was a, a, a woman who had two children. And she basically, at one point, God bless her, decided she was going to make Nell into a child and she's going to move in with her sister and she wouldn't be allowed to go fishing in the morning and she would do the meals and that was going to help her work. Um, and so for a few few months, Harper Lee was living with her sister and people in that town knew that she was working on the Maxwell case and they saw her working and her sister would talk about the book. So there's that. And then there are letters she wrote. So I'm drawing on a lot of different kinds of source material. And it's hard to say because it's hard to know which of the things Harper Lee said was true. So she told some people she wrote the whole book but wasn't going to publish it because she was afraid of the Reverend Maxwell's accomplice and she was afraid of being sued by someone in the book. Or she told some people that her publisher didn't like the racial politics. So black-on-black -black crime was not palatable for the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. A black serial killer was just not something anyone wanted to read about. And then she told some other people that, you know, quote, she wrote two-thirds of it, but she couldn't figure out the ending. The only things that have materialized in terms of actual manuscript pages are one page of the notes and, and a four-page chapter, which seems to be the same Maxwell material. But nobody, even the people who say, I know she wrote the whole thing because she told me and then said this thing, those people did not read a manuscript. You know, the, 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 the things people can say definitively are, she read me this paragraph or she read me this page, but it does not add up to a book. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, there's no one who would love to read Harper Lee's true crime book more than me, you know, truly, I, I would love to be wrong. Yeah, I would love to be wrong. But I think part of the reason I'm so much less sanguine is I just think if there were a manuscript, more of it would have turned up. 
Um, and there would truly just be, you know, the way, look, what Watchmen was published. Yeah. I, I think if it existed, we would have seen it. But that still doesn't answer the question of, was this not writing the same as the other not writing? And that's where, to me, that's what was fun about this book. So, you know, I got to do true crime writing. I got to do political writing. I got to do a little bit of economic history. But there's ultimately a lot of kind of literary biography at the end of this book. And the question is, what is the texture of writer's block? And, you know, we're used to thinking about the kind of textured success of a writer, you know, which of Keats's odes is the best or which ordering of Yeats's poems is the best. And here's the opposite problem, which is right. What does failure look like? And is it always the same kind of failure? or Is it more failure or less failure? And for a little while, I was trying to think about for Harper Lee, these all these books she didn't finish that she thought she might write. You know, she had this list of ideas. She started these other manuscripts. You know, which of these projects is more or less unfinished? And is she the best arbiter of that distinction? Or is it about the number of pages? Is it about the quality of the pages? And it's kind of a tantalizing mystery to think about the emotional reality for her of, you know, I think in some ways the Reverend, this true crime project is the most unfinished because it's the one she most subjected herself to scrutiny for. So because she told so many people she was going to write it, there were a lot of people who were disappointed and a lot of people who were keeping score. When it came to some of the novels, you know, it was only some family and her agents who knew what she was up to. But with the Reverend, she did all these interviews. She kept in touch with people. People in this town would still call her up, send her a Christmas card, ask how it was going. And so I think there she just had, you know, in the in the best description, she had accountability. But in the worst, you know, she had a lot of shame and guilt around this project. It was not just an idea that one day occurred to her that she wrote down in her diary. It was something, you know, she told the world she was writing. And she quite conspicuously called it a book, not just a thing she was interested in. Because when she first came to town, people thought she might just be writing an article, like, a you know, a New Yorker article. She might just be writing up the case for some magazine. And she had written some for Vogue and for McCall's. But, you know, she, she said, no, no, I'm working on a book. This is a book. I hope it works out. It's going to be a book. I think it'll be a great book. And over and over again, she told people that. And therefore, there was there was more shame and guilt around what had never happened. And, you know, I think for some of the writers who read this book, I think they interact with it in a kind of specific way. And it, and it has to do with their own kind of journalistic ethics around sources. You know, somebody you told you were going to write a profile of 10 years ago, or, you know, some somebody you did extensive interviewing with like your grandpa, and you were going to write a family genealogy or something, and, and you never did. Um, and so there's just this kind of writerly angst when you read about Harper Lee telling everybody in this town. And, and look, this is, this is a town that over the years didn't fare well. They were a big, rich textile town. And then the textile industry moved to Latin America. And, and it's now, you know, it's, it's, it's a place that's struggling economically the way a lot of the Deep South is. And, you know, this was a town that wanted to be as famous as her hometown. And they thought people were going to come to see, you know, just the way people go to Garden City, Kansas to see where Capote wrote in Cold Blood, and they go to look at the clutter house. They thought she was going to put their town on the map, and she never did. I don't know whether, you know, if you could if you could subject Harper Lee to questioning, which Lord knows she would never have answered our questions, but let's take the hypothetical further, and she's got the truth serum, and she has to answer. I still don't know if she would have said, oh, it felt the same. It was the same kind of failure that I had experienced all those years before, or if it felt different. She certainly, at least at the beginning, was a lot more enthusiastic about it and a lot more hopeful and a lot more 
excited and and just busier with it because it was truly this the reporting was such a social enterprise and you know she would go to people's houses for cocktail parties and you know meet the journalists in town or she would go to the high school to give a talk for the high school students and and it was just you know a, a, a bit of optimism in in what had been a long period of depression and failure so at least initially it had a very different texture but by the end you know i i think there's such a heartbreaking distinction between reporting and research and writing. And eventually it became the same kind of failure, which is I have a story I'm trying to write that I can't. And that it didn't matter that it was nonfiction. It it, it was the same kind of failure to write that she had faced before. So I've been talking to Casey Sepp. We've been talking about her debut book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud and the Last Trial of Harper Lee, which is out in the UK from Heinemann. Casey, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.